Revelation. We're going to be in Revelation 17. Now, um, be it for good, bad, or indifferent, I've been teaching the Wednesday nights out here at Harvest for, uh, for 14 years. Um, started teaching them out here in 97. And I can remember before that when Jim used to teach the Wednesdays, he always used to use the Wednesday between Christmas and New Year's as kind of a uh, prophecy update Wednesday. I don't know if you guys remember him doing that or not. And it was always because the Wednesday between Christmas and Easter, excuse me, Christmas and Easter, yes, Christmas and New Year's was always the, um, for lack of a better word, the least attended Wednesday. I don't know why, holidays going on. And so this has always been kind of a fun Wednesday for me because you never know who's going to show up, if anybody's going to show up. And so I was thinking about that today. They usually use this as a prophetic update. And I thought, boy, you know what we're going to get into tonight, Revelation 17 and 18, I got my little papers here of articles that I found in the New York Times and other things like that. It's like, this really kind of works out good to be almost a little prophecy update as we go through the book of Revelation. Because I tell you this, guys, is if you just watch the news in front of you, it is like prophecy being fulfilled left and right, right in front of you as we just see this. It's an unbelievable thing. And what we did last Wednesday when we got together, we just did verses 12 through 16, and we talked about what the Battle of Armageddon was. So if you've ever had any questions about what Armageddon was, I encourage you to get the copy from last week because we went into detail of what the Battle of Armageddon is. So what we're finishing up here with today is we just got a few verses in Revelation 16 of the Last Bowl Judgment, which takes us right into 17 and 18. Lord willing, time willing, I want to do 17 and 18 because they're a package deal. It's like part one and part two to go together. If you split it up, you don't get the full effect. So I want to make sure we can do that. What we're finishing with tonight is the judgments are over. 16, 17, 18, all go together, which builds us up to the middle part of chapter 19, which is the return of Jesus, the second coming. So what we have here is this last picture of what's going on. And what happens in 17, 18, in the first half of chapter 19, is Babylon is destroyed. Now, we have to talk about what Babylon is. Now, this is what gets interesting, and I've shared some of these articles with you before, but it bears repeating. Right now, Babylon is a... Metropolis, I guess, if you will, is just in ruins. That's what it is. And so what you see here in 17 and 18, you see Babylon being mentioned. Now the question comes up, is this a spiritual picture of something deeper, or is there a literal rebuilding of Babylon? And I find this fascinating, because here's an article out of the New York Times, and I've shared this with you before. This is about Babylon. And it says, the, quote, the title of the article is, Babylon awaits in Iraq without fighting. And I'm just going to read just a couple little quotes here. Ahmad Lafta Abayata, a mayor, has big plans for Babylon. Quote, this is what he wants for Babylon. I want restaurants, gift shops, long parking lots, he said. God willing, he added, maybe even a holiday inn. The United Nations Educational Science and Cultural Organization is pumping millions of dollars into the project and restoring Babylon and a handful of other ancient ruins in Iraq. UNESCO has even printed up a snazzy brochure with Babylon listed as a premier destination to hand out to wealthy donors. Now this all started back in 1985 when Saddam Hussein was a project that was part restoration, part new construction, and all ego. He imported thousands of Sudanese laborers to build an ancient-looking palace right on top of Nebuchadnezzar's original one. Yellow brick walls 40 feet high and stamped with Mr. Hussein's name replaced the stumpy mounds of biblical age mud. Then here's the last couple quotes in this article. UNESCO hopes to completely restore Babylon and turn it into a shining gem of Iraqi tourism. But Mr. George is not dispirited. He's meeting regularly with archaeologists from around the world and laying plans for a study center and a tourist village. And listen to this quote. Quote, one day 
millions of people will visit Babylon. I'm just not sure anybody knows when. That's like the most prophetic statement anybody could ever make, and he didn't even realize it. I heard a pastor say one time about the Pharisees and Sadducees. They said things that were really smart. They just didn't realize what they were saying. And it's the same thing here. This is a really start smart statement. One day, millions of people will visit Babylon. I'm just not sure anybody knows when. And I'm telling you right now, and this is an article from the New York Times from just a few years ago. And if you want to read it, you can look at it up here to make sure I'm not taking anything out of context. But the point of this is, when you would have looked at Revelation 17 and 18, maybe 50 years ago, definitely hundreds of years ago, you never would have thought that Babylon would be rebuilt. And now, that's what they want to do, is rebuild Babylon. So when we mention Babylon here numerous times in chapters 17 and 18, are we talking about a literal town, village that's going to be rebuilt? Sure looks like it. Is it a deeper spiritual picture of something when we refer to Babylon? Are we talking about just the epitome of evil in the world? It's probably a mix of both. But there is a good chance that there is going to be a literal Babylon rebuilt, a literal city. That's also symbolic of what's going on, too. So keep that in the back of your mind. Now, the reason we're going to do verses 17 through 21 of Revelation 16 is because what you have here in chapter 18 is you have Babylon being destroyed. How is Babylon destroyed? Just throwing it out there, Babylon may be destroyed by what we read in verses 17 through 21 of chapter 16. It says, Then the seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air, and a loud voice came out of the temple of heaven from the throne, saying, It is done. And there were noises and thunderings and lightnings, and there was a great earthquake, such a mighty and great earthquake has not occurred since men were on the earth. Now the great city was divided into three parts, which would be Jerusalem, and the cities of the nations fell. And look at this, and great Babylon was remembered before God to give her the cup of the wine and the fierceness of his wrath. Then every island fled away, and the mountains were not found. And great hail from heaven fell upon men, each hailstone about the weight of a talent. That could be anywhere from maybe 80, 90 pounds to 100, 125 pounds. Men blasphemed God because of the plague of the hail, since the plague was exceedingly great. Now this is an important thing to mention. This is the culmination of God's wrath on earth. Now I don't want to repeat everything we've gone over the last few weeks, because if you haven't been with us the last few weeks, it really sounds like God is just angry and mad and he just wants to kill a bunch of people. I cannot stress to you enough, if you weren't with us, you've got to go back and read chapter 14. Chapter 14 is the 144,000 preaching the gospel, angels in heaven preaching the gospel. The whole first half of chapter 14 is God loves the world so much, he's giving them opportunity again and again and again to repent. They choose not to. And it bears repeating in chapter 16, look at verse 9. And men were scorched with great heat, and they blasphemed the name of God who has power over these plagues, and they did not repent and give him the glory. Verse 11 of chapter 16. They blasphemed the God of heaven because of their pains and their sores, and did not repent of their deeds. It's important to note, God gave them opportunity, they chose to reject it. And what do you see here at the end of verse 21 again? Men blasphemed God. Now, I don't know about you guys. These hailstones raining down from heaven, a hundred pound hailstone, that's going to cause a lot of damage. And this earthquake that happens, that's some earthquake. Now, if you remember correctly, we went through the seal judgments uh, you know, a while ago. We talked about there was a great uh, earthquake before. And this right here, this was an earthquake to end all earthquakes. And when you look at this right here where it talks about islands disappearing and mountains being moved in verse 20, that sounds kind of amazing. But you know what? Do you remember that earthquake that hit, uh, what was it, about five years ago, if I remember correctly, about the 27th of December? And that called that calls that the tsunami that killed about a quarter of a million people. You can get online and see the satellite images where literally islands disappeared, and how literally in some of these earthquakes mountains moved. Now they moved a very very tiny distance, but they still moved. Now the point I'm saying is, if something like that, which only affected a small geographical part of the world, 
which literally calls mountains to be moved. Can you imagine what this earthquake's going to do in verses 17 through 21? When I read in verse 20, islands fled away and mountains were not found, this, this, is, this is unbelievable destruction. Unbelievable destruction. 100 plus pound hailstones falling from heaven, this is unbelievable destruction. So when it says Babylon, it gets its wrath, this is a pretty easy way to destroy a town. Now once again, to be repetitious to the point of almost annoying, God gives them opportunities to repent. They choose not to. So since they chose not to, this is the consequences of their actions. One of the toughest things I do out here at church is when you see somebody going down a path they shouldn't see, you warn them with scripture, you warn them with words, you warn them in love, you warn them, and they still jump off a cliff. Your heart breaks, your heart hurts, but at the same time, those are the consequences of their actions. So I believe that this earthquake here, these hailstones, really are a building block to what we're going to read here in chapters 17 and 18. Does anybody have any quick questions, comments about that for our foundation that we're going to lay here? Ryan. And, and you're absolutely right there. And I was just looking through this article as you read that, because if I remember correctly, there was a point in here somewhere along that time, uh, that same point there. Um, you know, he says right here that uh, Saddam Hussein built uh, pyramid styles in the same modern of Nebuchadnezzar. He called him Saddam Hill, etc. And so there was little points in this article about that same thing. For Saddam obviously had delusions of grandeur when it came to that. But yes, if you stop and think about it, uh, you know, when Saddam Hussein was in power, there had been no way that Babylon could have become what Babylon was supposed to be. Now that Saddam is out of power and this has opened itself up, the, it's really its limitations are now no longer there. That the UN can come in, they can do what they want here, and you really could see this becoming quite the place to be. And that's what it sure seems like it's going to happen. Kind of a fascinating thing, it's right before our eyes. John. Mm-hmm. Right. And it's quite possible, because if you remember a couple weeks ago, when we got to the bowl judgments, we said, take a look at the bowl judgments and compare them to the plagues in Egypt. Bowl judgments, we have water to blood, we have hailstones, we have darkness, we have sores. Same thing happened with the plagues. They're, they're very, very similar if you want to do a study on that. And I think what we kind of see here in Revelation is you almost want to say, okay, God, enough is enough. But the point is, this is 6,000 years of judgment that has built up. And one of the things about God is he's a fair and just God. Part of being fair and just is sin has to be punished. And if sin's not punished, he's not doing his job as God. And so therefore, I think the sin has to be punished, so the world has to suffer because the world is under a curse. And so it is part of that. It has to happen. And even though some of these people may have hardened their hearts and not repent, God still says, I have to finish all the bowls that I have. You know, it reminds, almost reminds me when we have the kids at home and they're eat, drinking medicine. They hate, hey, you've got to finish the medicine. <laughs> you don't take the whole dose, it doesn't do any good. Here's the whole dose of the bold judgments. Yeah, it hurts, but you've got to take the whole dose because this is part of the judgment that's coming. But anybody else got anything about the earthquake part? Okay, now we are introduced into Babylon. And once again, remember this in the back of your mind. Possible literal city, but also symbolic of many things. Verse 1 of chapter 17. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came, talked with me, saying to me, Come, I will show you the judgment of the great harlot who sits on many waters, with whom the kings of the earth committed fornication, and the inhabitants of the earth were made drunk with the wine of her fornication. So he carried me away in the spirit into the wilderness, and I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast, which was full of names of blasphemy, having seven heads and ten horns. 
The woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and precious stones and pearls, having in her hand a golden cup full of abominations and the filthiness of her fornication. On her forehead a name was written, Mystery, Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots and of the abominations of the earth. I saw the woman drunk with the blood of saints and with the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. When I saw her, I marveled with great amazement. Now, I call this religious Babylon because this is kind of what it seems to be representing here is religious Babylon. I think sometimes we get this picture that in the tribulation period that it's going to be almost not religious. I think it's going to be very religious. The religiousness of it is just going to be a mix of apostasy with truth and it's going to be focused on the Antichrist and Satan. But it's going to be a very religious time. Because there's going to be miracles being happening, there's going to be signs in heaven, and there's going to be this religious spirit. Now note, this is not a good religious spirit, but that's what's going to be going on. When we see this description here, we see this harlot, this spiritual harlot, that has aligned herself with the Antichrist kingdom, with some type of spirit of religion, and you see this mix coming together. The Antichrist is not stupid. If he wants to gain power, one of the ways you've got to gain power is you have to have the religion on your side. Now, don't misquote or misunderstand what I'm saying. But if you go back, I love history. If you go back and look at Germany in the 30s, the Nazis became a very anti-religious group by the time the 40s came around. But if you go and study them in the 30s, they weren't opposed to religion. They knew if they came right out and said, religion is bad, no one would follow them. They kept that religious spirit going, so therefore people were okay with them. The Antichrist isn't stupid. He's not going to totally forsake religion. He's going to bring the religion into his mix of heresy and false teaching. And that's what you have going on, this religious Babylon, that verses 2 and 3, there's this political religious partnership that goes on. She's a great harlot who sits on many waters. Verse 2, with the kings of the earth commit fornication. You see this mixing of religion and politics coming together in this falseness. That's part of the way the Antichrist gets his power. The focus of it, look at verses 4 and 5. It's all about materialism. She's got the gold, the precious stones, the pearls, etc. But yet it's just this filthiness of abominations and fornications, etc. And then you see this mix of materialism, but yet also with this religious spirit. But what you see here in verse 6 also is what? True religion. True followers of Jesus Christ are then martyred. So it's going to be a very religious spirit during the tribulation, but it's a mix of political with religion, and it's a mix of a worldly focus on materialism rather than on the spiritual things of the Lord, and you're going to see a persecution of the saints going on. So there is this religious entity that's going on. Well, the thing is, this religious entity doesn't stick around. The Antichrist uses it for his purpose, then he destroys it, verse 7. But the angel said to me, Why did you marvel? I will tell you the mystery of the woman and of the beast that carries her, which has the seven heads and ten horns. The beast that you saw was and is not and will ascend out of the bottomless pit and go to perdition. And those who dwell on the earth will marvel, whose names are not written in the book of life from the foundations of the world when they see the beast that was and is not and yet is. Here is the mind which has wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman sits. There are also seven kings. Five have fallen, one is, and the other has not yet come. And when he comes, he must continue a short time. The beast that was and is not is himself also the eighth and is of the seventh and is going to perdition. The ten horns which you saw are ten kings who have not yet received no kingdom as yet, but they receive authority for one hour with kings with the beast. These are of one mind, and they will give power and authority to the beast. They will make war with the lamb, and the lamb will overcome them, for he is lord of lords and king of kings, and those who are with him are called chosen and faithful. Then he said to me, The waters which you saw where the harlot sits are people, multitudes, nations, and tongues. And the ten horns which you saw in the beast, these will hate the harlot, they turn on her, make her desolate and naked, eat her flesh, and burn her with fire. 
They use religion for what they need to use her for, and then they turn on her, verse 17. For God has put it in their hearts to fulfill his purpose, to be of one mind, and give their kingdom to the beast until the worlds of God are fulfilled. And the woman who you saw is the great city which reigns over the kings of the earth. Which is a reference to what in verse 18? Rome. Now this is fascinating stuff. And please don't think I'm skipping over verses 7 through 14. We already covered that back in Revelation 13. So if you weren't with us and you think, okay, well what's the whole seven heads, seven mountains, ten horns? What, what is all that? Well, I encourage you to go back and grab Revelation 13 and you can get a further little study on it. But just a quick reminder of some of the things that were going on here. There's a lot of references to Rome in this but the idea of the seven mountains on which the woman sits. So Rome seems to be a focus of what's going on. Please note in verse 10, he only continues a short time. The rule and reign of the Antichrist in the whole scheme of history is just a matter of years. It's just a short time in the whole scheme of things. And so what you see here also in verse 12, it comes out the ten horns represent ten kings, which are kingdoms that are going to come into existence. And what happens is they give their power over to the Antichrist, and that's how the Antichrist then creates his kingdom. And once again, this is a lot of repetition because we covered it, but I encourage you to go grab Revelation 13, and that will go into the detail what we wanted. But what we need to focus on today is verse 15, is this religious harlot has power over people. Verse 16, the Antichrist kingdom turns on her when they no longer need her. And then what happens in verse 18, she reigns from the city of Babylon. Excuse me, she reigns from the city of Rome. Now, there's a lot of stuff to chew on with those verses. And you can sit here and kind of make you know, questions and comments, etc. But the thing that kind of keeps getting me is I see in this idea here of oneness. Verse 13, they are of one mind. That idea of being one as they come together. And you see that being repeated again and again and again. Verse 17, for God has put into their hearts to fulfill his purpose to be of one mind. Now, right now, isn't it hard to imagine the world being one mind? But it's going to happen. I love to find articles. And I like to find these articles because I like to see prophecy being fulfilled right in front of us. I found an, an interesting article. I didn't print it out, but it was just happened a couple months ago that China was calling for a one-world currency. China's got a billion people. they got a lot of sway. Now, we don't want to get into politics. China has a lot of American assets. So when they say they want a one-world currency, that carries a lot of weight. We already see it happening over in the European Union. But here's a fascinating article that came out a couple years ago. And here's the title of it. This is out of the New York Times again. Pope! urges forming new world economic order to work for the common good. And it's a long article here about how the Pope feels that the world needs to come together as one. And as if they would come together as one, that they would use, excuse me, that they would have a globalization as one of the words they used, and that would help out the world a lot. Now just think about that for a second. You know, and I'm not getting into Catholicism or anything like that, but you know, there's over a billion Catholics in the world. And so therefore, the head of the Catholic Church is now saying it's a good idea to maybe for us all to come together as one. So if you've got a billion Catholics that are moving in that direction, in some sense, by the Pope saying it, you've got a billion Chinese that are saying that, okay, right there is a third of the world. <laughs> you start seeing it starting to come together. It's hard for us to imagine a oneness. But guys, it's out there. And this is not some just making it up. This stuff is right out of the news. It's right out of the paper. You see it coming together right in front of us. So what you have here is religious Babylon 
is the religious system of the world that is left after the rapture that aligns itself with the Antichrist for a few years. The Antichrist uses this religious system that is left to gain power, to have control. Once he's done using them, he turns on them in verses 16 and 17 and destroys what is left because he no longer needs this fake, false religious system. That's what religious Babylon is in chapter 17. Does anybody have any quick questions, comments about religious Babylon? Yeah, Ryan. Yeah, and that's a good way to put it, as a cult. It was very fascist. Um, one of my favorite quotes I have is actually a quote from Hitler when he comes to power in the 30s, where he talks about the importance of the church and the importance of God and how they would never push that off to the side. And once again, that just shows what people are willing to say and what they're willing to do. And I'm not trying to get into politics when I say this, but we know this. We have a presidential election coming up next year. Every candidate is going to claim to be a follower of God. Every candidate is going to name drop God in the right states at the right times, the right elections, because that's just what we do. Same thing's going to happen here with the Antichrist. He will have a religious background because that is something that he can use for power. Oh, agreed. No. No, and, and, and I agree with you. And that's where I think it's so vital if you look at verse 6 of chapter 17 is the martyrs of Jesus. I mean, that, that's what they're going after. And then there was another reference to where they make war. Verse 14, these will make war with the Lamb. Yeah, I mean, yeah, they're, I don't think they're name-dropping Jesus. Yeah, it's, it's that idea of God. Yeah. Yeah. And, and that's the thing is when you talk about that word religion, that's really what it comes down to. Religion is man's attempt at something spiritual. And there's religion all over the place. And, you know, relationship is obviously God and us through Jesus Christ having that relationship. And here's the truth of the matter is, let's just be honest, we live in a uh, nation where there's a lot of religion. And some of you grew up with a lot of religion, and there was no relationship. I mean, this is what we're talking about, this falseness, this fakeness of name-dropping God, going to church, dotting your eyes, crossing your T's, but it's religion. It's not a real relationship. And that's the whole thing that tries to get pushed in Christianity, is you can't be religious. Christianity, it's not us trying to get to God. It's that idea of Jesus Christ coming down and dying on the cross for our sins, that idea of a relationship with him. Antichrist is going to be a very religious entity, but not a relationship at all in any way. Yeah, Jody. Mm-hmm, 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 mm-hmm. Well, right, and the, what you have to remember here is, what is what uh, Revelation is notorious for? 17 is what is called a parenthesis. What you have here in 17, verses really 1 through 6, happen in the first half of the tribulation. What you, that's what you have going on. At the end of chapter 17 is near the end of the tribulation where the Antichrist turns on it. So chapter 17 is really not a chronological chapter right after 16. The first six verses of Revelation 17 happen while the Antichrist is building his kingdom and power. That's him making the alignment with it. So yes, those martyrs are probably happening. If you go back, it probably lines up with Revelation 6. 9 through 11, and probably Revelation 7, 9 through 17. That's where I would probably put verse 6 with those. Antichrist coming into power and killing anybody that, that claims the name of Jesus. Question, though. Anybody else have anything here? Yeah, Mom. Revelation 6, 9 through 11, and Revelation 7, 9 through 17. Those would probably line up better with Revelation 17, verse 6. All right, anybody else have anything? All right, we tried. We're not going to get through chapter 18. So... Economic Babylon will have to get destroyed next week. Um, but I encourage you to come to that because what we get into now with 18, which goes right into 19, we're just a chapter away here from the return of Jesus Christ. Now, this is important, and this has become a little tradition of us as we finish our study here in the book of Revelation. 
this information that we get, it's great information to know. It helps us. It takes us deeper in our walk with Christ because we know end times events, and therefore we have a better understanding of God. Remember, the book of Revelation is the revealing, excuse me, the unveiling of who Jesus is. But, as always, as born-again believers, we're not going to be here for this. Amen. And number two, we take this information that is given to us, and this spurs us on to be a light and witness in all that we do and say. And it doesn't even spur us on to be a light and a witness in all we do and say. I hope it spurs us on to remember there are little things in life that are going to bring you down and annoy you. And the whole scheme of heaven and hell, it doesn't matter. We're talking about billions of people dying here. And what matters are souls saved or not saved. It just amazes me, and I've seen this in my life here this last week, how many times I've allowed something tiny and little get under my skin, lead to bitterness and anger and frustration. The next thing, I know I'm snapping at this person, snapping at that. And you look back and you say, does it really matter in the whole scheme of eternity? Boy, it doesn't. Revelation just constantly reminds me, seek first the kingdom of God and all these things shall be added unto you. And let's not allow the little things of the world to get to us. Let's not allow that just annoyances and those little thorns and stones in the shoes to bring us down. And we got to remember, Lord, it's all about you no matter what we're facing. I mean, my goodness, this week there's been so many, there's been people dying, there's been people diagnosed with cancer, there's been surgeries that have gone, you know, haywire. That stuff is what's important. It's keeping the focus on eternity in Jesus, not these little things that bring us down. So let's keep that in our back of our mind as we go through our study here in Revelation. Let's keep our focus on Christ and everything else falls into place. Let's have a word of prayer and we'll let you go. Heavenly Father, just thankful, Lord. Thankful for the time to be here. And Lord, I just think about this religious institution of Babylon. Lord, I just pray against that. Lord, there's so much religion around us. Lord, I just pray these people who truly have a relationship with Jesus Christ and all that they do and all that they say. That's what matters more than anything. And Lord, as we just get ready to celebrate the new year here in a few days, Lord, um, just that newness in you of who you are and what it represents, or that new relationship in Christ. Lord, we ask for your blessing upon us as we travel home safely. And Lord, we also just want to pray for Saturday too that you'd go before the family. In your name we pray. Amen. Just a quick reminder. On uh, Saturday evening there, Jim Barron coming out from WBCL. It'll be a wonderful family time. And then the teens have a great uh, lock-in going on after that. Hope you guys can make it out for that. So you guys have a good week and God bless.